This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In this session, Nalini Singh, Steph Green and Jane Castell discuss with Susan Sims why romance writing matters in the 2021 and what success looks like to writers of this billion-dollar genre. Presented by Romance Writers of New Zealand. Kia ora katoa. Welcome everybody and thank you so much for taking the time out of your Saturday to come and attend our workshop, Romance Writing and the 21st Century. Uh, sponsored by Romance Writers of New Zealand, an incredible organisation which is one of the most generous writing organisations I've ever had the privilege of being part of. Um, I'm Susan Sims. <laughs> I'm Susan Sims. I'm the current president of the organisation. Um, very sharing and caring and really generous with advice and help. Not the kind of folk that go, oh yeah, I'm writing this and I'm not telling you anything. They're like, oh, have you thought of this? And have you thought of this? And... The lovely ladies on my left are a huge part of that. Um, I'd like to introduce, from my far left, Jane Castell, an award-winning author who writes epic, historical and fantasy romance. Her vibrant characters richly researched historical settings and action-packed adventure romance transport readers to forgotten times and imaginary worlds. In love with all things Scottish, Jane has published a number of Amazon best-selling series. When she's not writing, she's reading, and rereading her favourite authors, cooking Italian feasts, which I can highly recommend, and going for long walks with her husband, Tim, who is also her long-suffering editor. Hi, Tim. (laughs) Hi, Tim. (laughs) Next, we have Nalini Singh, and we were talking about whether we should cut her intro down because it's enormous. But... It's enormous for good reason, so stick with. She is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of the Side Changeling and Guild Hunter series of paranormal romances. She also writes New Zealand-set thrillers, the most recently released of which is Quiet in Her Bones, which is available to buy afterwards. Publishers Weekly calls it a lushly written, multi-layered mystery that will keep readers guessing. Her contemporary romances include the Rock Kiss and Hard Play series, the latter of which revolves around a rugby-loving family in Auckland. 32 of Nalini's solo titles have hit the New York Times bestseller list, most recently Archangel's Son in November 2020. Her books have also hit the USA Today, Publishers Weekly and Wall Street Journal bestseller lists, as well as the Spiegel, Spiegel? Spiegel bestseller list in Germany. Her books regularly appear on New Zealand's Nielsen Bookscan bestseller list. She's received the Australian Romance Readers Award several times, won two Sir Julius Vogel Awards, the first book in the Side Changeling series, Slave to Sensation, was named as one of the New York Public Library's 125 books from the last 125 years that inspire a lifelong love of reading. Born in Fiji and raised in New Zealand, Nalini was first published in 2003. Her books are available in print, audio and ebook, and have sold over 7 million copies worldwide. They have also been translated into multiple languages, including German, French, Italian and Turkish. Her next release is titled Last Guard, and that will be released in July of this year. We also have with us Steph Green. Under her pen name, Stephanie Holmes, Steph is the USA Today best-selling author of paranormal, gothic, dark and fantastical books. They feature clever, witty heroines, yes they do, secret societies, creepy old mansions and alpha males who always get what they want. Legally blind since birth, Steph received the 2017 Attitude Award for Artistic Achievement. She was also a finalist in the 2018 Women of Influence Award. Steph is the creator of Rage Against the Manuscript, a podcast, books and courses to help writers tell their story, find their readers and build a badass writing career. She lives on a lifestyle block on the South Kaipara coast with her husband, a horde of cantankerous cats and their medieval sword collection. Please welcome our writers. So we're just going to start with the basics. From your perspective, what is the romance genre? What makes it special? I would say the hope. And I think romance novels inherently about hope. And no matter how bad things get, you know, we, we will have a hopeful ending. And so I think for me, that's the heart of it. Yeah. Mm, I would agree with that as well. Hope, definitely. And, um, and emotion, too. 
Mm. It's um, romance is all about emotion. I think um, I, I agree a hundred percent. Hundred percent. You know, the, the hope is so important. You know, the intense. You know, to me, um, I think back to when I first fell in love um, with my husband, or you know, anyone else I've fallen in love with, and how intense the, those emotions were, and how amazing it is to go into a book world and basically fall in love all over again. You know, you get to experience those feelings, you know, again and again and again, and they're some of the most wonderful, most intense feelings, most human you know, experiences that we all share. And I think that, you know, that's an integral part of, of what makes romance romance. <laughs> so romance has long been considered escapism. Do you agree with that, Jane? Yes, I do. I do think it provides escapism. I think um, there are a lot of people in the world <laughs> who have had difficult lives, who have had disappointments, and I think that sometimes all of us need to escape. And I think it's a it's a beautiful form of escapism because you, like Steph was just saying, you, you you're living, falling in love. Um, you know that there's going to be a happy ending. That's very important with romance, um, and that escapism, yeah, transports you you to another place and another time when you are often when you really need it. So I do I do think it is escapism, um, the best kind. Nalini, do you? Um, I don't know why escapism is sometimes used as a pejorative. Yes. Because I think it's fantastic, right? I remember when I was a kid reading science fiction and fantasy and often other worlds. And, yes, it's escapism, but it's not a bad thing. (laughs) Um, So I think, yeah, romance, like, you know, Jaina said, it's it's the best kind of escapism. Takes you to other places, other worlds, um... Other other emotions that you my, yourself might not have experienced. So it's broadening your world view. Um, and if that is escapism, yeah, so be it. Exactly. <laughs> that was exactly what I was going to say. You know, my answer to this is always yes and. You know, <laughs> reading is escapism. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what genre you're reading. You know, if you're reading fiction, it, you know, there's an element of that that is escapism, and. You know, you, we're going to talk get a bit get to this later, but there's, you know, there's a whole interesting thing about why these types of words are used to describe um, books which are la- largely written by women, largely for a female audience, and that, that, that you know that's a whole other that's a whole other thing. Thanks, Steph. <laughs> Steph, why do you write in this genre, and what was the catalyst for you to choose romance as your as your uh, um to a certain extent Um, (laughs) you know Slave to Sensation was the first romance book I ever read Um, and you know so it's pretty amazing to be I didn't know that (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know I was a a weird kid Um, you know I was you know visually impaired, I was blind, um, you know, I didn't have many friends, and books were kind of my only friends, I, you know, I always wanted to be, well, I wanted to be an archaeologist, I always wanted to be a writer as well. Um, I always thought, you know, even when I was reading um, Paranormal Romance, I always thought I read fantasy, and I never knew I liked romance books, um, and I always thought I was going to be a super serious science fiction writer, and my first three books are actually quite dark, serious science fiction books. And then one day I went to a party and my friend was at this party and she was talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. And she just read the books and she loved them. And I had read the first couple of chapters and, I, you know, and no, sh- no shade on anyone who loves those books because they're, they're brilliant. But I was not into the writing at all. And so I was throwing a bit of shade at these books and her liking them. And she got a bit annoyed and said, well, it's not like you could write a book like that, Steph. (laughs) And I said, well, I sort of said to myself, well, challenge accepted. (laughs) So so in secret, without telling anyone, I made up this secret pen name and I I wrote this 
paranormal romance, this little short 30,000-word novella about a fox shapeshifter artist who fell in love. And I put it up on Amazon, and instead of my super serious science fiction books that were selling like two copies a month, this thing sold a 1,000 copies in a week. <laughs> and when when I, I sort of realised I had to tell my husband that I'd written this, you know, I was making I was actually making some money from from my writing, but it wasn't this, you know, it wasn't the science fiction. It was this fox shapeshifter's sexy paranormal story. And when he had finished laughing his ass off, he said, "Well, are you going to write some more?" And I said, "Well, yes, I am." <laughs> what about you? I um. I started off writing, I've, I've always written, and for me, writing has always been a form of escapism. Um, I was quite a shy teenager, and for me, like writing was kind of a way to kind of live other lives and have excitement and actually not have to do anything, but just kind of live it um, through my writing. But then I, um, I started off writing um, epic fantasy, and I put them up on Amazon, and they didn't really sell. And then I had this idea for a historical book. I visited the site of Sutton Hoo in England. Um, it's where a longship was buried, a um, Saxon longship, and my relatives right, who live right next to it have never visited it. None of them have visited it. They live right next door virtually. Like, how is that possible? Anyway, I went and I was like dreamily walking around, thinking, oh, this is just amazing. And I found out the name of the king that was buried there, King Redwald, of the East Angles, and I was like, what if he had a daughter, and what if this happened? What? And then I was like, oh, I have to write the story. So I wrote the story, and then it ended up being a romance. And because I always realised that um, I've always loved stories that have love in them, um, and that end happily. So I put this in, and I wasn't really sure what I was doing, really, but I loved the, the history of it. And um, when I did put it up on Amazon, it sold a lot more than the epic fantasy, um, and then I started to get quite a bit more feedback from readers and saying they wanted more, so that, that's, that's how I kind of got started in romance, um, through, yeah, through, through the side door, really, um, similar way to, to Steph in a way, I sort of, I had, my, my passion was always epic fantasy, and I still love epic fantasy, but I discovered actually that I have, a, my voice is really well suited to historical romance, I, and I love the Dark Ages. And I write medieval as well now, but I really, yeah, it really just spoke to me. And when I started researching that those eras, um, it was for me, you know, way to time travel really to to go back hundreds of years into the past and live these people's lives. So, yeah, that's how I got started. Nalini, you've mentioned that you started writing as a teenager. Were you straight into romance, or did that come a little later? Um, so I was a bit precocious. <laughs> I think I picked up my first romance novel at a far too young an age, but. I turned out okay, so it's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about your kids. Um, <laughs> I literally remember taking a bag of Mills and Boone novels from my auntie, who was a really voracious Mills and Boone reader, and she said, oh, yeah, I finished with these ones. You can have them. And I was like, yay, I'm so excited. And that was the first time I really dove into them, and uh, I just loved it. I think it was so in one of my other sessions, we were talking about childhood books and Rose Carlyle brought out the Sweet Valley High books. And um, so when you think about it, it was really like, a, it wasn't that much of a transition. Like it had the emotions and it had like, um, you know, people falling in love and it just spoke to me. There's a resonance to it, the emotions. And, but I was also reading science fiction and fantasy. Um, and yeah, I can't really remember why I decided to just start writing it. I mean, I was a teenager. I was into it, and I thought, you know what? Then I made my friends read them. <laughs> like, you have to read them, and you have to give me critique, feedback, and they're like, we don't read these books. Oh, you're going to read mine. So here it is. I printed out the manuscript on dot matrix paper. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can just unroll the pages. <laughs> if you're young and you don't know dot matrix paper, it's all attached with these little serrated lines so it literally just comes together in like this massive sheet mm. um so yeah so yeah I, I think I must have been about 16 17 when I started doing that and then I submitted at 18 and I was just in I was in love with the stories and the and looking back I think what worked for me is the emotional connection and what I find now is no matter what I read I tend to to drift towards books that have an emotional bond of some kind. 
um, not it doesn't have to be a romance. It could be a deep friendship. It could be like, for example, the Naomi Novik books with the the dragon. You know that relationship is with the dragon. You know it's not even a human. It's it's those bonds, and I think with romance, it's the purest form of that. This is where you just dig deep into people's hearts and that the journey of the human heart, and yeah, that just really resonates with me. You finish with the talking about the human heart. Romance author, author Grace Burrows speaks of the emotional nutrition of reading romance. Do your readers respond to you with comments about that, Steph? Um, reader, reader comments are yeah. like the most amazing part of mm. being an author. You know, like the money is nice, um, but but the you know um, one of my most popular series has a heroine who is um, going blind progressively across the series, and I am quite you know because I'm I'm legally blind myself, um, I you know I'm I am simultaneously drawn to books with blind heroines and repelled by them because they can often contain a lot of awful sort of ableist kind of things, un, you know, often unintentionally by the authors. And so, uh, you know, a lot of what I was doing with this series was I wanted to have a, a blind heroine who, who got to be blind, who wasn't healed. In the, it's a magical series, but, you know, it's a paranormal series, but she, she's never healed of her blindness. And she, you know, she gets to have, she gets to have a life full of adventure. She gets not one, not two, but three sexy boyfriends. <laughs> Because that's how we roll, um, you know. And that I, I have never received as much um, reader reader emails and, and reader comments of anything I've written um, as I have from that series. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of it is people who um, have, you know, vision impairments or other disabilities, saying, you know, thank you so much for sh- you know for showing that, you know, for giving me hope that you know I can have. You know, a, a, a full and exciting and adventurous and and, and life filled with love, um, because that's often not shown in media, and so that you know, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Nalini, do you get similar comments? Yeah, yeah, and um, I get those kind of comments. And and what you were saying about the emotional nutrition, I so I got this one letter. It's quite representative of quite a few letters I've got. And this girl had just been in hospital. She was at the hospital, you know, with her parent who was in hospital and she'd been doing this for a long time. And then she was looking after someone else and she was coming home and she got splashed by the bus. She's exhausted. She's like worn to the bone. She gets home to cold house and I think the electricity was off. Something went wrong. She had no dinner and she basically just broke down in tears and then she saw that her book that she'd ordered had arrived. So she literally picked it up, you know, changed clothes and started reading. And she said it gave her the breath she needed. Like she gave her back the energy just by giving her space for herself for a little bit. And, you know, like I'm getting teary because it was so emotional. And it's such a small thing when you think about it. But it can mean a lot. And that's what I said about escapism not being a bad thing. Mm. Because she needed it at that moment. Yeah. yeah. No, that's so true. And I've, I've had um, emails from readers as well who've, you know, really kind of had me almost in tears, you know, where they, um, a lot of my readers, um, historical romance, um, tend to be over the age of 65. Um, and they're often caregivers or, you know, grandmothers with, you know, big families. And they've given a lot to everybody else, but never much to themselves. And, they, um, there's been one or two that have some of the themes that I've brought up in some of the books have kind of touched them or um, one lady who lives in France you know, I, it was a second chance romance that I'd written about two, two lovers who had been parted for about 18 years and then were brought back together and they were both a little bit older and she said, you know, it really um, brought back memories from her past and a past relationship and, um, and you know, I've had this, another lady who... Um, who recently lost her husband? Who and she's based in the US, and she um, had he, he, she was his full time carer for years, 
and the books were, you know, she used to email me and say, you know, your books, you know, really kind of just a wonderful escape for me. Um, and I try in my books, obviously you have the, the romance theme and you have tropes, which are different kind of themes, I suppose. Um, so you have like second chance or you have enemies to lovers or you have um, um, love triangle or there's lots of different... There's, and, and the readers of romance love these and it's always the way that you twist them that, um, you know, that makes, you know, makes the book a little bit different. But on top of that, I try to create a theme like a resonant theme throughout the whole story as well. It kind of ties in with that those romance tropes. So it could be, you know, the um, family relationships, or it could be, you know, what the nature of what sacrifice is and things like that. So, so that you you have that kind of double layered, you have that layered sort of emotional response by the end of the, the book. And I think readers, yeah, I um I've been really touched and. and like Steve was saying, yes, the money is nice, but but the the contact with the readers for me is, is the most wonderful thing. It really is. Thank you. And touching on tropes, and I know that you know romance is often sort of slightly sneered at, and and tropes is one of the reasons because people don't who don't read romance don't always realise it's used quite deliberately, and and romance is often spoke about in a very derogatory way, as formulaic mummy porn that gives women false expectations of relationships. Now, I know Steph's really hanging out to respond to this. <laughs> yeah. What say you? <laughs> Look, <laughs> all fiction is formulaic. You know, all fiction is formulaic. Crime fiction. If you wrote a crime novel... Um, and you didn't solve the crime at the end, everyone is going to throw their books at the wall and go, well, I'm never reading that author again. Because, you know, when we, as readers, when we, we pick up books, you know, we want a specific experience. And that is the same across all genres. You know, fantasy readers, they want to go on an adventure and they want good to triumph over evil. You know, crime, you know, crime, they want, they want to be clever and they want to solve the mystery. Um, our romance readers, they want to fall in love. And and it's it's fascinating that this you know knowing that all fiction is formulaic, it's fascinating that this is a a a, a term and and mummy porn and all those other things um, that gets thrown at, as I said, books that are largely written by women, largely for a female audience, and I think you have to think really carefully about why that is true. There's another interesting thing that happens. Um, we were talking about this earlier today. Um, romance criti- um, critics call it the, um, we, we call it the, uh, the words to Fabio measure, which is when people talk about romance in the media, how many words will they use before they talk about Fabio? <laughs> and it's usually not many, even though Fabio has not appeared on a romance book cover for more than 30 years. Um, so you know why is our genre, um, which is one of the, which is the largest um, uh, fiction genre in the market, you know why is that defined by a man who was on the covers? You know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's on covers of the seventies and eighties. Yeah, you know yeah. he was on the covers for a relatively short period of our history, and you know yeah. while well, we were both underage. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were all underage. Exactly. Cover model for anyone that's not heard. Of yeah, there. Italian cover cover model was very. Um, he was on every traditionally published yeah. um, romance novel for a while there. Yeah, yeah that, that's sort of that sort of quintessential what you know people used to call and still often call the bodice ripper. Yes, you know, I totally love that one. Yeah. I have never ripped a bodice in my life. I would no, they're quite difficult. I know. <laughs> but I was going to say, I may one day just write a bodice ripping scene <laughs> on purpose yeah. and make it really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I write historical, and there are no ripping of bodices. There's no ripping of bodices. <laughs> okay, because it's kind of difficult with all the laces. Yeah. And everything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Do you two have anything to add on that one? I was going to say, I mean, The Fast and the Furious, James Bond, Jason Bourne, men have survived this. (laughs) They have not suddenly thought they can climb tall buildings in a single bound. (laughs) And um, so when you think about it again, it's an insult to women's intelligence to, to even have that conversation because what Steph, everything Steph has said, um, uh, there was a research project I read about about how when the novel came out, you know, the first novels, 
They were just dangerous. People did not want women to read them. Might give them ideas. <laughs> so that is the history of yeah. the novel. That is the history of sort of misogyny that's coming into these type of comments. Yeah. And I think it's, it's good to challenge that. And it's good to say, well, why? Why do you say, why do you think that? You know, and quite often the people who say those kind of things have never actually read a modern romance novel no. and have sort of really outdated ideas. Um, and the thing is, those novels at the time, 30, 40 years ago, were transgressive for their time. Mm. So I would never denigrate them because that is our history. But if you're talking about today's books, you know, that they, they, are, they live in today. And so the discussion needs to be formed about what they are than what people's ideas of them are, which are quite different yeah. things. Yeah. They are. And I think a lot of people equate the word romance with sex. And, and it's interesting because it says a lot about people's societies. Um, I attitude towards sex is that you know immediately if you read often an article about like romance um it'll be you know snigger 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 you know got straight to the sex scene got straight to the naughty bits as if you know the rest of the story didn't matter and it was just the the sex you know and to tell you the truth there are a lot of romance books that, that have no sex in them that you know there is the whole clean and sweet um section of the because of course within romance the heat levels vary massively like you start with sweet or clean as it's called and then you go to kind of like um sort of steamy and then it go, starts to work its way up and then it ends up with erotica right at the top and so I think often people who think that sex and romance is the same thing have never actually ever picked up a romance book because there is so much more to it in fact what we were talking about in the beginning was it's about emotion emotion is the driving force behind a romance book and the sex scene will leave you cold if there's no emotion behind it and the best sex scenes and I'm sure we've all read you know books where with the sex scene we've thought you know was really really well written and the reason often why that is is because the emotion behind it is so powerful that literally those two characters just have to look at each other and the and your kindle bursts into flames you know <laughs> <laughs> like pride and prejudice I mean you know there's so much sexual tension and and they don't even in the book I don't think they kiss um so I think, I think yeah, I think that that's a lot of the a lot of the stereotype to, to towards uh, romance is, is this obsession. Society is obsession about about it being sex and naughty and 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 I know that for me personally, when I write my historical romances, one of the things I love about it is that a lot of historical fiction per se, a lot of it, not all of it obviously, but in the past a lot of it was always very male-centric and it was always about kings and warriors and, and the nice thing about writing historical romance is you get to write about kind of like between the lines of history, like about these women who had these extraordinary lives that were never written about, that could have lived. I mean if you go back into history books you'll see that you know most of the women that were mentioned were... Um, are the queens or martyrs and saints or fallen women who, you know, um, you know, corrupted people or witches. <laughs> um, but there were all these other women that, that lived incredible lives. And, and one of the things that I love about the genre I write in is that I get to tell their stories. I get to time travel and, um, and tell their stories. So there was a bit of a tangent, but, yeah, it all kind of links into <laughs> the same. <laughs> well, and I think that sort of leads really nicely into the next question, which is, is what myths would you like to dispel around romance writing? And that was a big yeah. one was for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, I would just want people to challenge their conceptions of it. If my first question to anyone who says something that I think is, is wrong is just how many romance novels have you read? And how many recent romance novels have you read? So I just want people to challenge themselves and, and ask that question um, before making opinions you know if you're going to have an opinion so here are here's the thing there are bad romance novels just like there are bad mystery novels and bad literary fiction you know so if you're gonna make a judgment at least make an informed judgment that's all I ask um I'm not gonna be like you must like romance novels maybe it's just not your thing you know that's fine but at least try some before saying oh no no that's not my thing without ever having read it or really knowing anything about it. Because when you look at all the media we consume, all the TV shows and the uh, movies and stuff, so many of them are based on the romance structure. 
so many, many really best-selling movies are romances. And so I think there's a lot of people don't try it because they have preconceptions about it. Yeah. I can't add anything to that. (laughs) (laughs) Each of you write full-time and quite prolifically and actually earn a living from doing so. Do you ever have to field comments about having sold out because of that from people who perhaps have a more literary model of a book every couple of years and never making a living out of writing? I think (laughs) the question I get is, when are you going back to law? Because oh. this is Never. just a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been back to law in over a decade, people. Um, no, I think I don't get those comments because the people that I've surrounded myself with are people who are supportive of... I mean, I say I got to a certain age and I really had no time for anyone's... You know what? So... I just, why would I want that negative energy around me? So, yeah, I just, not anymore, you know, it's Mm. not. And also, I don't, I don't understand it because writers will want to write. We want to have the space to write. And so I get to do that. And so if someone says to me, have you sold out? I'll be like, yes, happily. Now I get to write. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, I feel the same way. I, um, I, Generally, uh, people are very supportive and um, really impressed that I get to make a living writing because we have this um, image often of the starving writer in the garret, you know, not being able to make any money from their writing. And in the past, before, I'm I'm a a self-published author and that has allowed me to become a full-time author. And in the past... um, very few authors were able to actually make a living, a, a decent living too, from their from their writing. So I feel really, really fortunate. And so um, most people always say, you know, wow, how did you do it? <laughs> um, you know, and yeah, so in, in general, I think, and when they hear that I write romance, maybe they see my covers and one or two of my covers have like, you know, sexy man with naked chest on the front. They're like, oh, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but generally, um, I found people to be quite supportive, um, and it's, you know, um, I feel that as a self-published author, I'm also like a businesswoman as well as an author. It's, you know, an entrepreneurial thing as well because I have to run it all myself and the marketing and um, I work closely with my husband, Tim, who's my editor. Um, so we have like a small little publishing house and, and, and that, that aspect of it I love as much as, as the writing itself in a way. But yeah, in, in general, um, I certainly don't feel that I've sold out. Not at all. Um, <laughs> Um, I do get comments about this sometimes, and, and a lot of it is because I am quite open about um, my writing journey, and you know I talk a lot about the the income side of things at, through my podcast, but, um, you, you know largely because to me it feels as though there has never been a better time to be a writer um, because of self publishing, um, and a lot of other reasons, but that is a big big thing and that's enabled me and it's enabled Jane um, to yeah to, to, to live the dream basically and so when people talk to me about selling I often say yes just like Metallica because selling out you know if that's what I've done it's great <laughs> yes. yeah. so with that what does success look like for you is it defined by sales or earnings you see that um, Julia Quinn, with Bridgerton having been picked up and made into now Netflix's most successful first season ever, uh, I think they recently hit 84 million viewers of the series. Um, do you think it? Do you feel like it's increased interest in romance writing? I know her books have certainly gone ballistic on the on the yeah. sales charts. I it certainly put um, it certainly put romance as a genre, as a literary genre, back into the mainstream media. But often mainstream media discussions, as we talked about the words to Fabio, often mainstream media discussions around romance are pretty uh, sledgehammery, um, <laughs> shall we say. So um, to a certain extent, romance authors are very used to just keeping on doing our thing in our corner 
without, um, you know, we don't need the New York Times to be covering our books, you know, because we're just doing our thing for our readers. And that's what we've been doing, you know, very successfully um, for decades, um, absolute decades, you know, you, you almost, you could probably say centuries. Um, so, yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> what does success look like to you? Is it sales or earnings or is there more to it? I think it's kind of a combination of things. I always say, I always talk about on my podcast and I think, you know, every decision I make about my business always comes back to this, which is, um, you know, there is a million easier ways to earn a living than being a writer. Like, if you go into writing because you want to earn lots and lots of money, then you should just be an investment banker. Um, like, this is not the this is not the easy path. Um, so, you know, I think first and foremost, it has to be creatively fulfilling for you. And it certainly is for me. You know, I just, I like leap down the stairs every morning, so excited mm-hmm. to go and sit in my computer and create things. And, you know, I think I think that's really, uh, you know, a lot of that is at the heart of what we do. Um, like I said, the money's nice. Um, and there is, you know, there's an element of we have to be, you know, we're businesswomen as well. So we have to think about our writing as a business. And so, you know, we look at, what goes up, what goes down, you know, what's what's doing well, should we do some more of that? You know, so there's an element of business in that. Um, and then, again, it's 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 often about the readers. It's all about you guys, you know. Um, we just want to make books that you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, it's a little bit of both as well because I've always wanted creative freedom to the time and space to write, and so from the first, I my, my sort of goal or measure of success wasn't to hit a bestseller list or to be a household name. What I wanted was to make enough money, just enough money to actually be able to be a writer. So I didn't have to make, like I could be eating beans on toast every night, but if it was enough to, if that was enough that I could be a writer, that was my measure. And that's actually never shifted. As long as I can be a writer, you know, everything else is a bonus. You know, the bestseller lists, they're lovely. Um, and, you know, lots of sales, it's lovely. But my measure of success is being able to be a writer, just being able to support myself with my writing. And, and I think that's actually been a really grounding force in my life. I've been able to make decisions and say no to things that wouldn't have gone with my creative vision because even if it would have made like a lot more money and so yeah I feel you know I feel at peace with that and and I feel really privileged that I am able to be a writer because I know so many writers who are just beautiful wordsmiths but they just haven't found their readers and so what Steph said about the readers you know and having that connection with readers who who love what I write I mean, that's the other pillar on which I stand. So, yeah, yeah, that's for me, that's it. Mm, and I agree with both of you. <laughs> it's the same thing for me as well. It's readers, absolutely, like what I was saying, you know, being able to have that contact with them, you know, with the internet and email. You know, you can be living in Dunedin, New Zealand, and, and receive an email from someone who lives in Madrid or someone who lives in New York who's read your book and loved it. And, and, and that's fantastic. And being able to wake up every morning and t- sit down and write a story, which is all I've ever wanted to do my whole mm. life. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And I've done lots of jobs over the years. <laughs> um, and I, I became like a, a freelance um, writer uh, before I sold enough books to be able to go full-time. And I kind of, sort of inserted in, you know, time for actually fiction writing, but I always resented the other job. <laughs> so I was like, no, let me write my books. All I want to do is write my books. And I think that's the thing. I think even if... No one ever read my books, and I didn't earn anything from them. I would write. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, what Steph was saying before about, you know, there are so many ways that are easier to make a living than writing. And if you don't love it, if you don't wake up in the morning just, like, wanting to write, then um, it could be a really hard slog. And because books are big, you know, to write a full-length novel is a lot of work, exhausting emotionally often. Um, you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, I need, I need a holiday. But you often can't because you've got other things to do. Um, and so for that reason, the, um, yeah, the, the love of it has to transcend all else. 
Yeah, it definitely does. I, I mean, when I was um, publishing, there was no self-publishing. So I agree with Steph Woods, who says this is the best time to be a writer because there's choices. Mm. So I wrote probably seven, eight years trying to get published, um, trying to get a publisher to pick it up, fueled by nothing but passion for, for what I was doing. No one was paying me a single cent. You know, I did it for the joy of it, for the writing. And, I, yeah, it has to be at the core. Um, everything else flows from that. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of riffing off of what you were talking about, how about how almost the independence of it, the ability yeah. to support yourself. Is, you, you know, when, when I got out of university, um, trained to be an archaeologist, and I could not get work. I spent nearly two years trying to find work, and because of my eyesight, I dealt with incredible amounts of discrimination in the workplace, and writing is a job that I can do that no one can tell me I can't do. I would like to see them try. Yeah, <laughs> and, so would I. You know, and, yeah. Yeah. and I will, I will fight tooth and nail to never, never have to give that up. Yeah. Each of you has mentioned that this is a business for you, and I don't think that's something that we talk about as writers terribly often. Can you touch on? You know, it must be a huge amount of additional work, I imagine. But you know, you are all businesswomen as well as, as writers. It's not this sort of creative, I just get to sit at my computer and write beautiful things. There's a ton of work around supporting that for each of you, I imagine. Jane, would you like to speak to what that's like? Yeah, there is a lot of work to that. And, and I think if, if you enjoy... I really, I really love that aspect of it, I have to say. And I think if you didn't, then I think the traditional publishing route would definitely probably be better suited to a person who just wanted to write. But even having said that, um, I know that even in traditional publishing, you are expected, um, as an author, to have a mailing list, um, a newsletter that you curate yourself, that you you'll also do a little bit of your own marketing. Um, unless you're really like one of their top authors, you know, you will be expected. You know, most mid-list authors do a lot of their own marketing. So having said that, you know, it's still a requirement for traditional publishing a bit. But when you run your own um, publishing imprint, more or less, um, all of that stuff is, is up to you. And so... Um, I, 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 I must say I really enjoy it. It, is, it can be tiring and I have to make sure that I don't, you know, that I schedule my time so that the writing always takes priority and it does. Um, and I think in the beginning I would kind of panic a little bit and I'd be like, oh, I should be doing this and I should be doing this and I should be doing this. And these days I actually, for me, the thing that I focus on the most is the book and getting the best book possible out there. Um, but I, I think things like having a, a newsletter, um, a, a my, my website's all right, but it does its job. But but having a basic website, newsletter is very important because it's how you communicate directly with your readers. Um, I have a small social media presence, but an, an effective one. So I've tried not to do too many things. I think, like I said, it can be very, very overwhelming. You're like, oh, you know, I have to sort of hustle, and I, I hate the thought of hustling. The sort of, you know, buy my book, buy my book. It's like, if you don't want to buy my book, that's absolutely fine. You know, I don't want to push it on anybody. So I try um, these days to do very little of that sort of thing, actually, if, zero amount of actually of that sort of thing. I tend to let the books speak for themselves, and because word of mouth is the best form of marketing. So if someone loves my book, then they tell somebody else or, um, yeah. So I, um, yeah, I do think that the business side of it is important, especially if you're going to self publish. Um, but it, it should never overshadow the, the books themselves. So, yeah. um, I was going to say, I'm in a slightly different position because I am hybrid. So that means I am, I'm actually quite heavily traditionally published I've done a little bit of self-publishing just because I, I'm a tech head and I really must know all the latest technology. Um, but so um, these two ladies are really business people. They are small publishers in their own right and they do an enormous amount of work. But on the traditional side, um, so I had a slight head start because I was a lawyer. So I went into it, into my first contract, actually asked questions for my first contract, even though I was really scared they were going to take it away if I asked Christians. <laughs> but um, because I wanted it so much, you know, and I think quite often writers in that position of wanting it so much that they don't ask questions. And um, so in that sense, you do have to be pragmatic 
and you have to look at the contracts you're signing. So that's the business aspect that comes into traditional publishing as well. It's like, what rights are you giving away? Um, is this in your best interest? Because, you know, copyright could be for your lifetime that you're signing away. Um, so are you, are you willing, what they're giving you, is that worth signing away? your copyright for your lifetime. Um, and sometimes it is, you know, some, there are good contracts and there are bad contracts. And I think it's important to realize who you are as a writer. So Jane has said she likes the business side of things. Um, I'm okay with it, but it's not, it's, it's not my favorite thing to do. I would rather, um, be more in traditional publishing because it works for me. And, um, yeah, so, so there's different aspects of it depending on your career path that you take. But the one thing I would always say is that at some point when you're a creative person, um, you do have to, to put on that practical hat. Um, whether you're doing it as a self-publisher or you're going into a traditional deal, you have to look at it with clear eyes. You know, um, Whether it's making a decision about advertising money or a decision about, okay, this publisher is asking for audio rights. Do I sign audio rights with them? What will they do with these audio rights? So I think uh, it's particularly important to have that conversation in New Zealand because I think um, I've seen a lot of bad contracts because local authors aren't aware what they're giving up. Um, and so you really, yeah, just just think. I just want people to think. And I, that's what I try and talk about when I talk to younger writers or newer writers is just um, read every line of your contract and make sure you understand it because that is going to impact you for decades, what you're signing. Steve? Yeah, um, I very much agree with everything. Um, you know, yeah, I, so I'm self-published as well um, and I, I sort of think about my, you know, my business as, you know, I'm a publishing house of one so I have to be the, I think of it as I've got three departments. I've got the creative department, I've got the the production department or the packaging department, which is where the book goes from being kind of finished, it goes through editing, it gets a cover, it gets a blurb, it gets packaged in a way that will excite my readers. And then I have the marketing department, which is where that book goes out into the world. And I have to be all those departments, and then I also have to be the CEO who makes strategic decisions across all those, um, you know, all those different things. And, you know, before I got to quit my job, I worked in the tech industry. So I came from kind of a world where we were very, like, move fast and break things and, you know, be the first one to market and things like that. So I'm quite, like, I'm quite into that a little bit. So I write my books quite fast. You know, I am publishing a book roughly every couple of months. And that means that I can kind of study, you know, I have the ability to move fast. So I can study, you know, trends that are that are coming up in the market. And, oh, lots of people are reading these types of books at the moment. People are really interested in this particular trope. Do I have an idea up here on Monoggin that will, you know, that will speak to that? And if I do and I'm excited about it, maybe I write it. And because I'm self-published, I can put that book out whenever it's finished. I don't have, you know, this sort of year or 18 months where it has to go through that kind of the, the machine of traditional publishing. So we can respond quite fast. And that is a really, it's a very different way of looking at at the market. Um, and it's, it's, I find it really exciting. Mm. And I think that's really cool. It is exciting. Yeah. It really is, yeah. Just one last question before we take questions from the floor. Um, what would you suggest to someone that's keen to start writing romance? How would you suggest they go about it? Write the book. <laughs> Seriously, don't, don't worry about marketing or anything else. Just write the book first because that's, that's where it all begins. You can't do anything else without the book. Yeah. And experiment a little bit because sometimes the subgenre of romance, because of course romance has, like I said, historical, paranormal, contemporary space, yeah, space opera romance. I mean, there's lots. So experiment a little bit because sometimes the the thing that you think you want to write or the thing you think you'll be good at is not actually the thing that you actually have talent. I, with me, with historical, it was something that. I kind of stumbled on and I discovered that I was actually much better at writing that than epic fantasy and if I hadn't experimented 
I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have discovered that. So yeah, experimentation and allowing yourself to write stories, and and some of those stories will never see the light of day, and that's absolutely fine. And if they do, that's brilliant. But if they don't, that's also absolutely fine. I think your first books that you write are very much well, they're often less about writing a book that you're actually going to publish and more about figuring out who you are as a writer and what's your process and how do you actually go from an idea in your head to a finished manuscript. And that is the most important part. I talk a lot about this on my on my podcast and, and my website and things. Um, you know, It's very important. One of the, the biggest things that happens with you know, people writing their first book is they'll write three chapters and then they will spend ages, they've got, I have to perfect these chapters before I can move I on. did that. So yeah. I, did. <laughs> I did it all my, through my 20s. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is that if you actually ever finish that book, what often happens is you're just going to drop those, you have to drop those three chapters into the into the bin. Because, you know, that's a very common problem is that, you know, we start our books too, too early, especially as younger writers. So don't spend years editing three chapters that you might have to throw away. The, um, the system that I use to write books is what we call a skeleton draft, where I, you know, I my books are about ninety, hundred thousand words, and over the course of three days, I will write a ten thousand word, super rough, awful, never show it to anyone draft, which is just what happens in every chapter in a couple of words. I don't write the, you know, I write kind of the emotion, the vague emotion of the sex scenes and I just put insert sex scene here and then keep going. And, you know, and, and that gives me that gives me this time to get to know the characters and, and what's going to happen to them and how they respond to that without having to be bogged down by the details and then I'll go back and add the details later. And, and that's, you know, that's my method, which is weird to a lot of people. But that first book that you write, it's all about getting to the end. That's the important thing. Mm. You've got to find your way to get to the end. Because yeah, if you edit those first three chapters, you will never get to the end. It took me many books to get to the end. I, remember <laughs> I was very happy the day I finished my first book. <laughs> now giving up at page 70. <laughs> I think the fact I wrote it as a teenager was great. Because I, I was like, yeah, no, this is going to be awesome. I just wrote the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, where's my million dollar check? <laughs> Must have got lost in the mail. Uh, but yeah, th- that's a good point, which is the structure of a novel is vastly different from the structure of three chapters. You know, so you act- if you want to write a book, I quite often would say start with like a novella, which has inherently the same structure. A good novella is a self-contained story. It's a lot less words um, and it's less intimidating to say I have to write twenty five to 30,000 words than I have to write 90,000 words or 100,000 words. So if you're, really, you know, if you're really starting out, a novella is a good format. Read a lot of novellas and see if you can structure one and then try a novel, you know. But, yeah, write the whole book. Be, be the teenager within <laughs> that thinks you, you're just awesome and everybody wants to read what you're writing. <laughs> Even if your friends give you critiques, like I didn't understand what was going on in this. One. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Jane, Steph, and Nalini. Can we take some questions from the floor? Does anybody have any questions? Hi, I'm wondering if each of you could give a trope that you love, and maybe a trope that you despise. Oh, <laughs> no judgment. Oh well, <clears throat> I'll just start. Um, <laughs> Um, I love enemies to lovers um, as a trope. And and tropes, don't mistake a trope for like a stereotype. It's not. A trope is a tried and true kind of archetype of romance that then the, the, the writer twists to make new and fresh. So enemies to lovers, especially if you write historical, like I do, is a lot of fun. Um, and lots of inbuilt conflict because conflict is the heart of storytelling. So, and the Personally, I'm not, and this possibly could be because of the, the genre I write in, not a huge fan of Love Triangle. Um, I don't tend to read Love Triangles, and I a lot of my readers get annoyed if I've got, like, you know, two possible love interests, and they're both equal guys, and they're both, they're both like, really, you know, fantastic, but then I have to kind of make one less appealing, and then it just gets messy, and so, and of course, in the end, the heroine is going to pick one of them, and it just, yeah, it's not particularly a trope that I enjoy, um, personally. Um, it tends to be one that I tend to avoid. 
in my books, partially because my readers don't actually like them as well. You should read. You should write reverse harem. Reverse harem. <laughs> I have to explain because that's different to a love triangle. That's very different. Um, it, it is. Um, so it's a, a, a sidebar. Reverse harem is um, a sort of a relatively recent genre, uh, recent trope in um, in romance. Been around for about four years, really. And it's where the heroine will have three or more love interests, and she does not choose at the end. <laughs> That's yeah, the of, whole point of it. Yeah, the happy sort of, ending is yeah. all of them. It's all of them. And, and the hashtag is why choose. <laughs> oh, okay, shall I go? Um, so one I love is Friends to Lovers because I've always liked that people get along as they're falling in love. You know, so the conflict is not that they don't get along. It's something else. Um, so I really like that. And I love when people have a history and... Um, and one that I don't like, um, even though one of my friends writes them, is um, Secret Babies. I can't stand Secret Babies. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said to her, I'll read all your other books, but I won't read the Secret Babies because, to me, you need to have a really, 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 really good reason to keep a baby a secret from the other party involved. And I just, it's just most of the time, it's unless he's a serial killer. <laughs> then I might read it, but yeah, yeah, that's that's my one. What do you dislike, Steve? Um, I'm basically exactly the same as Nalini. No <laughs> secret babies. No, no. It, it, exactly the same reason. I just I, I find I go into them and I hate all the characters except the baby. <laughs> except the baby. Yeah, we like the baby. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for a happily ever after for the baby, but that is. That is um, and um, so I love reverse harem as a trope. Um, I also love, um, weirdly, even though I don't write historicals, it's a very historical trope, I love marriages of convenience. Mm. And that goes so well with enemies to lovers, which is my other favourite. You know, if it's a marriage of convenience, we're their enemies. It's <laughs> even better. <laughs> and mixing can really talk to you, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 We've answered everything. Wow. <laughs> oh, wait, we've oh, got wait, one. Great. Um, hi, I was just wondering how you avoid carpal tunnel. Uh, it's a good That's question. A really good I always question. wonder. I always think actually people should ask that question more often because I've often listened to podcasts of people who like put out like a thousand books a year, and I'm like, how do you not get carpal tunnel? <laughs> um, I actually have these compression gloves, which are fantastic. They're kind of like um, they're, they're supposed to be like for arthritis and stuff, and I wear them when I'm typing, and they're very comfy and snazzy, kind of silvery grey, and they 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 really help. I also use dictation. Um, sometimes if I feel that my hands are starting to get a bit sore. Um, my desk, I've got a standing desk and I've got like a separate monitor and a keyboard so that I can ergonomically, you know, not wreck my... Because um, laptops are terrible for bending your you know, head down and giving you very bad posture. And also that your neck affects actually your, your arms and your wrists as well. So it's all kind of interconnected. Um, so, yeah, that's how I avoid it. And I try to make sure that I'm not writing all day. So I'll write just in the morning for example, um, and make sure the rest of the day I'm doing other things so that I'm not like on the keyboard all day in the same position. But yeah, it is, it is a very real thing for, for authors, actually, carpal tunnel, and it's something that you have to be you know, very aware of because, of course, if you, you, know, if you wreck your hands, they're like your livelihood, and you can use dicta dictation, and I do use it, but it is tricky to get hold of and, and all the editing afterwards. You know, you have, still have to use your hands for that. So, yeah. That's how I avoid it. How about you? I, I do all the same stuff, basically. But um, I used to write on a laptop for a long time, and um, it is really bad for you. Um, so I have uh, I have the different monitor, and I got a mechanical keyboard. Um, and if you can get hold of one of those, that's also really good. Um, it doesn't need to be a high-cost one. You can just get a simple one. But it's the pressure of the keys. It's more clicky if you haven't used a mechanical keyboard. It's more similar to, like, a typewriter which didn't give people carpal tunnel. So I use that. Um, and I do dictate, but I usually only dictate the rough version because there are errors and, you know, things to correct. But at the same time, um, it's words on the page already that I didn't have to type. So the editing... And I also change formats, so I don't do everything on the computer. I actually edit a lot on paper. So I'll print out that draft and edit on paper so then I'm not doing the typing motion all the time so some of my work is just handwriting um, yeah so mixing it up is really good and what Jane said about not 
constantly writing. I mean, you do have those writing days where you just really want to write 10,000 words because you're just in the zone and you want to finish the book and it's just, and that's, that happens, that's fine. But I think it can't be a habit. can't be a habit to just constantly be Not, at the keyboard. Yeah. You feel it the next day. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do, again, very similar things. I don't, I don't do dictation. It doesn't really work with my method. Yeah. Um, but I, I have the happy things and um, I also use a mechanical keyboard and highly, highly recommend it. And it's a very, I love the sound, like yeah. the clickety-click sound. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm worth I get myself one of these. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to. Um, mine has like a light in it and it yes. changes colours. Yes. yes. And oh, it's cool. awesome. Um um, yeah, I write in sprints, um, not all the time, but especially when I am trying to put a lot of words down really quickly. So I put a timer on for 20 minutes and I'll write, you know, without looking at Facebook for 20 minutes. Um, and then at the end of that, when that timer goes off, um, I will get up for a couple of minutes and do something. I'm just about to, I've just started, um, doing like pole fit. And so I've just put, we're just, we're just installing a pole in my office. <laughs> so I'm like getting up and like <laughs> swinging around the pole and, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, back to it now. So yeah, you know, it's yeah. so going in a book, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much, and thanks everyone for coming. I'd really like everybody to take the time to thank Jane, Nalini, and Steph. And obviously, this event was sponsored by Romance Writers of New Zealand, and we're really thrilled that the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival has taken our genre in and actually included us in a festival where the genre that's often the, the sad one that's left out because of so many of the reasons that we've discussed today. So thanks to Hannah and Bridget and all the team that have worked so hard to put the event on and to put the festival on. We're really happy to be here. And thanks, Ina. Thanks, everybody. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.